Hello. Going on, Cherise? Not much. Oh, I did a vacation this Explain week. Explain a vacation. We did not stay the night at the hotel at which we booked a vacation, which is what the package was called. So Essentially, you, you just pay for access to a number of oh, yeah, yeah. facilities. Like the pool. Yes. Namely, the pool also went and did the spa. Yeah. It was actually my first hotel spa experience. There, I've never done them before, but I, it was actually very nice. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Cherie Spoon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and I appreciate you working through them with us. Making Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a to help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash makin for Discord access, exclusive newsletters, shop discounts, and more. Let's get into it. It was very relaxing. Because I've done toila, okay, which is like you Chinese have to explain it, yeah, massage in a like sports medicine type of way. Is yeah. that a good explanation? The sports massage. It's like a sports massage. Like it's painful. It leans on the pain end of the spectrum, but then the next day you feel amazing. Yeah, so most anyway. of my spa experiences are in a more. How do I put this like a, it's like almost like a factory setting where they, you just go into a yeah, massive yep, 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 yep. space and it's just built for tons of people to go in and just get massages, like rows and rows of recliners for people to get foot massages and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I've done that too. So this was my first like bougie, private, um, nice smelling oils, diffusers type stuff. And nice. I, I will say that I genuinely felt relaxed. At the end of the day. So when in my book. Nice. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about memories of the pandemic. Yep. So I got a very nice message from a friend of Macon who said that they listened to the episode and found it to be one of the most sincere and relatable COVID discussions on a podcast. And in particular, because this person experienced the pandemic in a very unexpected way and felt that our conversation helped to reshape their perspective in a positive and constructive manner. Oh, nice. So that was a really nice highlight yeah. to hear back. And we also got this, a couple of other random, or not, I say random in a negative way. I just mean unexpected messages that were quite encouraging about making it up. Like there was one from Short who was saying like, oh, I've not been in the Discord, but been listening to all the episodes and keep yeah. it up. So that was very sweet. Yeah. I appreciate it. The one last week was pretty well received. The one on Wong Hong. Yeah. I mean, shout out again to Vicky for putting it on our radar. Um, I mean, I feel like we barely. I, I'm glad, obviously, that people listen to this podcast. I am. But truly, the Wong Hong or article is like the main thing. Yeah, it's not. That, uh, it's more us. Oh, it's so funny because we're basically curating it which is a big part of the discussion we're going to have today. It's interesting because when I 
came across the article, like I said, that's been sitting. It's not like I saw that last week and I was like, oh, this is going to be the topic of the week. It's more that we never got around to it. Something could sit, sit and sit and, you know, nine months could pass. And if you resurface it to the right people, suddenly there's a sense of relevancy around it. And I think that's actually such an interesting and really fascinating way of approaching how our world works today, because there's no way we could see anything and everything. That's That was also true 20 years ago, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. But it's now like even a smaller percentage of the things that exist out there. And you're right, like we shouldn't or I shouldn't undersell ourselves because we do do a kind of service or type of work in selecting what to say about an article as well. Yeah. So I don't know if you would, I don't want to coin new words or like about creation, but essentially highlighting what we deem to be the most important parts of it or the parts that will be relevant to our audience in this moment that are worth discussing further. Yeah, totally. One thing I did want to speak about was in the last few weeks since the stores launched, have you had any sort of personal reflective takes on it? My take has been, oh, it's interesting to see the correlation between content being published and sales, meaning that if you are to engage in the realm of like selling stuff, if you don't have constant updates, then you're going to struggle to move product. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I wouldn't say that's a new revelation for me. It's definitely something I'm aware of. You're aware of it, but then maybe perhaps you don't see the one-to-one sort of outcome. What I would say I wasn't very aware of or didn't think much about was the trials and tribulations of global shipping. Oh, yeah, totally. Massive, massive Even though I have definitely purchased things online, I never really thought about the process in which that gets organized. And I mean, not to even say that I'm the one handling it because Nate is again, like shout out to Nate for doing it, but it's just been like an education. One, one thing for certain is that we, we definitely personally recognize that the cost of shipping was high, but we're also just plugged into someone's existing system. Like we're kind of piggybacking off a system. And I think for sure that's something that we want to, explore and figure out yeah one thing for certain is that we never wanted to profit off of shipping and like we're still a little bit uncertain if the auto generated amount is the amount people are charged right so we'll have to kind of go back and take stock and see where charges were a little bit off but i also i think that in terms of running this it becomes a little bit of an imperfect science because you're trying to calculate your margin or like your profit per item relative to where you might lose money, which might be shipping. So like if shipping is $20, maybe we, in light of the current sort of approach many people have towards both shipping and how they view the cost of shipping, you might just need to eat some of those costs. So we're still trying to figure that out. Yeah. I mean, definitely not. The intention was never to profit from shipping, but I guess what I'm saying, and people who do e-commerce will already know this, is trying to strike a balance between like what is fair to the consumer who's buying something and what also covers legitimate costs from our end to do the shipping. And like Eugene said, it's an art that we are trying to figure out. And if you are kind of waiting on buying something, we'll keep you posted on updated shipping. Do you want to go into your subject since we were already talking about creation? 
let's get into it. My topic this week is Curators All the Way Down by Gabby Goldberg. So this piece appeared on Mirror, which I guess is a little bit difficult for me to communicate as such. It's like, it's a new version of Medium in a way that's more crypto friendly. Sure. Yeah. And when I say crypto friendly, there's the ability for you to attach NFTs to the actual published piece. Anyways, this piece by Gabby Goldberg looks into the increasing relevance and impact slash power of curators. Gabby Goldberg starts by talking about a 1997 book by Malcolm Gladwell about cool hunters. So essentially the cool hunter is the person that goes in and identifies things that are cool and then surfaces it to an audience. And basically what it comes down to is that cool hunters themselves don't rely on education and money as their way of creating influence. It's actually by virtue of them consuming a ton of stuff and then I want to say regurgitate, but that's probably the wrong word. It's more about repackaging <laughs> it. It's about taking it and creating bits of relevant moments that are then put in front of the right people. Yeah. Right. If I was going to really simplify it, I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. That's sort of this the main catalyst for this piece to start off, right? It's about how influence has changed uh, over the years where, you know, like I said, in the past, it was about money and education as status. Now you're sort of transitioning a little bit into a different type of social currency that's driven by knowledge in a way, like your ability and know-how. I wouldn't just say knowledge because knowledge sounds very similar to education, which is like that old school marker of status and influence, like what university you graduated from and being magna cum laude, et cetera. Um, Instead, it's more skill-based, which is what you were saying, right? Like not just consuming knowledge, but knowing what to do with it and how to present it. Yes, yes. It's basically taking information and turning it into knowledge. If I recall, there's some sort of like, because information is really just. It's not just turning it into knowledge, what what I know, but like. No, there's a way, there's a way of like taking what is basically the raw data. I think, I don't know if it was taking raw data and then putting it into something actionable. That's kind of what I'm trying to get at. I like actionable more. Yeah. As a word, the knowledge. Consumable, whatever it may be. It's basically refining it. Yeah. Yeah. For an audience. Correct. Yes. I'm just clarifying, not just like for yourself as an individual. All right. So continuing. She references a piece by Mark Andreessen, who's a famous VC, who discussed how software was eating the world. And what that means is that software has sort of come to dominate anything and everything around us. Even you look at our phones, right? They're dominated by apps. There's only a handful of Well, a handful, yeah, is I guess relatively true. A handful of hardware providers that are all sort of utilizing software as the main functionality behind your piece. Because they all have... It's very hard to argue against that argument that software is eating the world. I almost think of it as a neutral statement of observing what's happening. Yeah. And in in one of her paragraphs, Gabby puts it as such. So it's fitting that exactly a decade later, we've come to another watershed moment. Software has eaten the world and now it's a commodity. It's not about the technology anymore. The era of the engineer has ended. The era of the curator has begun. Circa mid-2000s, that's when the internet moved on from this web 1.0, which is primarily just consumption-based, 
to something that was a little bit more dynamic and people could interact, they could self-publish. So that was sort of an, a wave within Web 2.0. I look back on those times as if you thought that moment in time was an overabundance of information, like obviously now, 15, 16 years later, it's even crazier, right? I don't know how to describe the current levels of information and material that we wade through in life. Yeah. It's because technically you and I, by virtue of coming through Hypebeast, was part of a business that built itself off of curation. Yes. Right. We basically went and sourced forums, other blogs. Yep. Print magazines to get more information. That was before there was a more connected uh, two-way conversation that existed with brands and artists, et cetera. Yeah. So in, in, in actuality, this movement has existed for a long time. And I guess it's still relevant now. It's like back in the day, people came to Hypebeast because they thought it was this curator of cool or what was a trend-setting movement taking place. As we started shifting our information habits, I think what happened is essentially you began to see different ways of interacting, right? As as consumers. As consumers, right? As information consumers, Mm. that is. And as you start to go through that sort of journey, right, it has come to its own particular challenges because of this inundation of content Several things are happening, right? But overall, this inundation of content means it's quite difficult for you to derive value from the content you're consuming. So how do you kind of cut to the chase and get what you need, right? And I think there's a level of trust as as a sort of middle layer that has become incredibly important for anyone that is consuming content, right? And you kind of see so many businesses built off of this exact notion. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Do you think that it was possible to describe any individual who participates in social media and reading information online as engaging in their own curation, even if they do it poorly by the fact of choosing who I follow on Instagram and Twitter, et cetera, TikTok, whatever platform? and picking to go to Google instead of Bing or whatever search platform it is. Like, those are curation choices as well. Correct. I mean, no one's forcing you to hit follow, right? So you are, in many ways, creating your own curation. Yeah, and perhaps you are not doing as good a job of it as you might like. As you're saying, maybe this is not the most effective way to actually get value for your individual life, but... I would say that if you do those activities, you are curating what you see for yourself. There is one part that I'll touch upon a little bit later, but the biggest difference that I see now is that before we had hit this massive wall of content, the algorithm wasn't as strong or not present. So when I subscribe to my RSS feed, what I subscribe to is what I get, Mm. right? Versus now, obviously, if I subscribe to CNN, Certain posts might not break through for whatever reason, because they're not relevant to me. They're not popular enough. They haven't hit a certain velocity to make a breakthrough and and be presented to a larger audience. I take your point. Yeah, for sure. Like back in the days of Google Reader and Feedly and those usage, you got everything 
chronologically as it was published. And you did get a lot of control, I'd say, in deciding what publications you were going to read. Yeah. So this is something that's interesting. I think this, this quote and statement by Gabby, in short, with democratized access, the web became more saturated than ever. And as consumers, we began to spend more and more time trying to sort through it all. In a state of analysis paralysis, how do we disaggregate signal from noise? So this is actually really interesting because it ties into a piece that I also was interested in speaking about uh, by Lee Jin, which discussed, which was a sort of reflection on two years past after coining the term, the creator economy. So what have we come to? And I think that for a lot of people, just as much as we're in this state of software is a commodity, so is creative work in a way. I think at the lower levels, like it's basically gig work where you're just constantly churning stuff out. And there are certain things that have resulted in the creator rising, in my opinion. And one of them is obviously the value creators bring on social media is their ability to just like play within the realm of sort of a deep branded experience. So what I mean is that you as a creator, right, you might take amazing photos, but like I, it's so easy for people to share things without having any sort of understanding of who your originator is. Right. I think that in itself changes it because you're seeing it in this very defined, clear cut CMS that is Instagram, which is once a one by one. Right. I could just go to someone's created feed and it doesn't really matter who created it as long as it fits like a sort of broader macro theme. Yeah. Um, another part of it, I think, is that the media cycle requires you to feed it on the regular. So as a creator, it's hard for you to create, you know, everyday impactful work. It's much easier for me to go and scour the internet over multiple years and genres. What was that piece we talked about where the internet basically eradicated the concept of time because people were finding oh, new things? Oh, yeah. That was one of my picks. Yeah. But in, in short, what they were saying was that... Oh, the, the internet is flat. Yeah. That's what it was called. Yeah. yeah. So in, in theory, like as a curator, you don't have just new work to pull from. I could look 50 years in the past and if it's relevant to a theme or it fits within the grid sure. I'm trying to curate, it Anywhere, all works. Anywhere, anytime, you can pull from it all. Yes. There's a lot. Exactly. So I think that by virtue of that, your need to generate engagement is in many ways a lot easier because you have so much ammunition, mm. right? You could have literally a folder with 10,000 relevant pieces of content that you could, you know, drip over the course of a few hours a day. Yeah. To kind of go on, she also talks about how certain curatorial platforms, I say platforms not in the sense of like an Instagram, but just people that operate as a platform on their own who curate experiences or visuals, et cetera. She talks about Instagram curation accounts like Hidden, which are kind of these really nice, well-curated, well-art-directed accounts. And the founder of Hidden said, you have to be obsessed with the media to keep up. In my opinion, a constant stream of your favorite things is much more telling than photos of your day-to-day -day life. My followers know me much more intimately than a typical influencer. Which is valid. I think that we've now also entered a space where media consumption is so indicative of identity more than it's ever been. And maybe that's 
because our hand has been forced by the polarization of media and politics, but I think that there's no easier, quicker way for you to sell brand than the things you associate yourself with. And I think that content, because it happens so often and there's so much to pull from, it's very easy for you to go in and create a narrative of who you are and what you represent through things you consume. Sure. I mean, also because those things say inherently a great deal more about you than like Hidden says, photos of your day-to-day life. And this is true even if you were trying to get to know someone that you've just met, you wouldn't ask them, oh, what restaurant did you eat at yesterday necessarily? Because how much is that going to tell you? There's a chance that it could tell you a lot, but it could really also tell you nothing, right? Or like in the past when IG first launched and it was photos of, you know, the same couple of scenic spots, right? Like what does that tell you? Versus like if you ask someone new, you meant, oh, what was the last book you read or what's your favorite movie? Those things, I think it's just obvious, right? Like you're saying is that those will tell you a lot more about a person. And so if you share those things on whatever curatorial platform it is instead, people will get the sense that I know a lot more about this brand, person, influencer, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I mean, this has in some ways been an analysis on why curators are powerful. And I think that, you know, obviously in this day and age, trust is something that's ex- extremely valuable, right? And I think trust is going to some going to be something that also plays into your topic that we're going to talk about. That's why I sighed just there. I don't even know if the mic picked it up. But I sighed because I find trust really hard to talk about because I'm not sure that I do trust people I follow on the internet that I don't know personally. Yeah. Like, I trust you, Eugene. But your trust is and someone's trust on the internet are not different, though. You, but you are a person on the internet as well. That's where I'm going. Yeah. And I was, I mean, our, our topics very much bleed into each other. And you do have curatorial power and I would say some influence, right? And there are people who follow you who do not know you in person who I, have a lot of confidence in saying they trust you. Yeah. I don't know that if I was that person, I didn't know Eugene in person, would I trust you? Like, I just don't know about that word trust. But, like, what does that mean? Well, for me, trust is about consistency and behavior, right? But the thing is, like, how someone sells themselves in that regard is up for them. Like, some people might, here's an example. Someone might make consistent claims that happen to be true. Right. That would be their form of like creating trust with you. Other people would perhaps uh, put out consistent statements relative to things that happen in the world. You're like, yeah, I I trust. Maybe I don't agree with everything, but at least they're consistent. So I think that whether you're an influencer or you're a brand, trust is is actually not that hard to create. But it's also about the, the frequency. So if you only have two moments of, quote unquote, positive trust moments mm. that's probably not enough to build a narrative yeah but i'm sure there's people that you feel like have had a very consistent sort of behavioral um showcase where like oh yeah you know what i trust that person because every time i've interacted with them because i'm sure there's writers you follow that you trust because of the way that they've set up arguments over time the topics they talk about i think you're maybe i think it's almost as though you're not thinking 
in a, in a holistic way of how trust can actually be earned with someone you don't know. I think the reason why I came out with that question was, well, I think about trust in a friendship level in this much more intense way where like I would trust you, I would loan you money, that kind of trust, mm-hmm. you know, or I would trust you to watch my dog or do you know what I mean? Like to house it for me. And that's mm-hmm. like a deeper level of trust. But obviously, like the people on the Internet, the type of trust you're extending is like you said, not you know, the yeah. money house, et cetera level, but it's a trust that someone is going to be consistent, is sharing verifiable information or or even just that you trust them to show you things that you're interested in. Yeah. That that kind of trust, which I would buy. I'm I'm already thinking of people that I follow who if they did something extraordinary, it would put a dent in the trust that i have for them yeah there are two more things in this piece i want to talk about and then you know if there are any other topics that come up we can we can touch upon them but gabby also references the power of curation and in terms of enabling so by virtue of giving someone an opportunity and them being able to kind of spread their wings and or succeed that is a reflection of your curatorial power so she uses she uses kanye west as an example who you know, once you see it listed out, actually, it's quite impressive. It's like the likes of Heron Preston, Travis Scott, Kid Cudi, Chance the Rapper, Big Sean, Virgil, uh, Matthew Williams, and Jerry Lorenzo. Oh, yeah. As well as Samuel Ross, like all people that have come in some ways through the Kanye camp. They've all gone on to be independently successful. So that in itself is like a representation of Kanye West's curatorial ability and his ability to just bring people together. Sure. And execute, yeah. right? I mean, it demonstrates something great. It's goes both ways. Their success reflects very powerfully on Kanye's talent, skill, whatever you want to call it, as a curator, and also his brand and influence enables this network, this these individuals yeah. to come up. And it doesn't hurt that having platform actually significantly improves the chances of curation in this capacity being successful mm. so i could in theory empower some amazing people but if my platform is not sufficiently large enough for me to spread the message then it kind of gets lost because it's not strong enough to be perceived as a positive signal through the noise i mean i know you didn't pick this obviously to like talk yourself up but no in a way your stint at hype beast brought up a ton of young people with you and who are also seceding right now. I mean, I was at Hypebee, same time as Eugene. Right now we record at FMBG, which Arthur Bray runs, who would definitely attribute a lot of his early learnings from to, from you. And I would keep listening on, but again, like I said, you did not pick this so that we could flatter you. No. But it is true. Like, obviously your platform is not the, the size of Kanye's, which is why we are not. Yeah. Karen Preston and Virgil Abloh right now. Yeah, exactly. But I think on a smaller scale, actually the same thing is true, that you had that ability of identifying people in this curatorial way and um, you're proven to be right over time. I, I did think about that. Like Sometimes I think about what we do and are we in some ways limited because we're in Hong Kong? Because Hong Kong in, it, in its own sense is a very unique microcosm. Like. It's a relatively big city, but it's also 
separated into two, two and a half cultures, right? There's like a local culture. There's a more westernized expat culture. Uh, and then if you even dig deeper, there's obviously only a sliver that that's maybe dedicated towards creative culture. So it's actually not very big in that capacity. Yeah. So there are things that, you know, maybe if we'd done elsewhere, maybe it would have had larger impact. And I can't really change that because it is what it is. But it is something that I think about a lot because if you have access to certain resources or people that can also further amplify the message, it just starts to consolidate. Yeah. Right. And there's, there's with good reason why I think certain trends are going to pop off in certain places because of a certain level of concentration. Stanley makes this argument a lot, actually, when he, uh, Stanley, my partner, when he and I talk about similar subjects, because he will talk about the States and how, just the sheer size of their entertainment industry in particular, like Hollywood, means that if you make it even just a little ways in Hollywood, you have global influence because mm -hmm. that is the size of the platform. But you could be the number one most famous actor in Hong Kong and just the reality of where we are, yep. it will cap what your platform is, what your reach is. Yep. And it doesn't mean that like the person is whatever like inherent skill or talent means like i don't think that's a reflection of that but we cannot change where we're located yep. right there's one last statement from gabby i want to read to cap it all off she says that in today's oversaturated world we need curators to help us separate signal from noise gladwell told us about cool hunters in 97 and they've now emerged as a solution in digital space culture is officially trickle up to tell us where to go we believe it'll be curators all the way down. So I think I think in short, it's a combination of a lot of things that result in the power now residing with the curators, right? I think that this is like so many different factors. You know, we've talked a lot about the sort of role of late stage capitalism in sucking our time. And that in itself is also like another macro effect that has now made people like curators even more valuable things like uber eats or just food delivery services are meant to fulfill our reduced time to cook mm. right to go out and eat whatever it may be like we're always so limited in time and i think that these are all these macro movements and macro effects that are all sort of weighing in on us this is not necessarily anyone's fault so much as there's been a general sentiment and maybe this is overstated but people have generally felt as though there's a lack of critical thought and analysis in the modern day and i don't know if that also is another thing that plays to the advantage of curators i'm thinking about it yeah i mean i, I it's not for me to like open up a can of worms so much as i'm trying to list out all the different variables that have made curators much more relevant or have made them relevant because of certain conditions when i think about this sense people have that there is less critical thinking in our current time i wonder if it is not that humans have changed but actually just that we know far more about one another than at any previous point in history essentially what i'm saying is that in any century there was an equal amount of people who did not think critically and people who did think critically, mm -hmm. but now because of 
platforms and networks and the internet and globalization, we're able to see exactly who those people are and how many of them there are. And it is just yeah, very apparent. But I wouldn't say that. I, I don't know. Can you say definitively like there's been a decrease in critical thinking and analysis? Like, I'm not sure there is. I would say However, that. I suppose it doesn't matter in this point, in this argument, because the sense that this is true and the visibility of it does do what you say about giving the rise of curation yeah. power. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things we could go on that we feel could impact this. Right. But overall, like I think that the latter end of this conversation was was pretty interesting in regards to kind of analyzing why we're in this place and is, and is it good or bad? I mean, curators are not a new phenomenon. It just it just so happens that right now their power and impact is probably bigger than it's ever been. Yeah. I mean, I was really interested in the part of this conversation where we talked about trust. I think that word is intriguing to me in a way that is still has complexity. I feel like for a while, a lot of people talked about authenticity to the point where the word seems to have lost all meaning because I'm not, it would require so much definition from each one of us to Mm -hmm. say like, oh, what is quotation marks authenticity? But trust, I still feel like, oh, I have a good grasp of like what that feels like and what the, um, the way the relationship defined looks like when you have trust or don't. Yeah. Should we move on? Let's do it. Mine is so related. I, d- I didn't realize this necessarily when we picked our two subjects, but it's going to feel a lot like a direct continuation. Yeah. My subject this week. The title of the article, which is in Vogue Business, meet the genuine, this is going to be hard to say. The title of this article, which is in Vogue Business, meet the genuine influencers who don't want to sell you anything by Kati Chitrakorn. I find genuine influencers to be a very hard word to say out loud. Genuine influencers. When you look at it, it makes a lot of sense. It is a, what are those words called when it's like a Compound words? Are you sure this isn't that? Because it's not the whole genuine. Anyway, whatever. Portmanteau. Yes, it's a portmanteau. That is a word I've only known about as of like two months ago because I had a project where I had to learn what that was. Oh, well, congratulations. You got to use it on the podcast. This phrase is a portmanteau of the word genuine, as in G-E-N-U-I-N-E, and the word influencers. So I actually wanted to kick off since this article is supposedly about a new type of influencers by asking you what you think a traditional influencer is. At its very core, an influencer is someone that influences you to make a decision. However, influencer... (laughs) Literally, that's like (laughs) just the the definition of an influencer period and not even in relation to like marketing. No, but I was going to say that you asked me that question. I think that what the influencer has become has mainly been in a vehicle for consumption of a product right which is why i think you need to make that distinction yes i agree which I would... is for me when i was reading this i was like oh man this is a sorry state of affairs if we need a new title to define what the original role of an influencer was i am skeptical as an aside i am skeptical that people are start going to start using the phrase genuine influencer 
aside from me like, too me too it does not catchy enough either it's really not but however for the purposes of this conversation a traditional influencer i agree is people that mostly influence other people to buy tangible products and i would also go on to say that typically those products are fashion apparel beauty related items I, yeah. I think i'm mostly accurate in that Genu influencers is a term coined by WGSN as one of their identified key trends of this year. And it refers to creators who command followings but don't identify with the common de- definition with which we've just established. Genu influencers are more interested in sharing advice, discussing their passions, and spreading unbiased information instead of pushing a new product or collection. They tend to be noticed for their high quality content rather than their follower count, says Cassandra Napoli, senior strategist at WGSN. If we could be positioned within that realm, I'd be very happy. Oh, I put a sub point right under that quote where I wrote, Eugene, you fit the bucket of genuine influencer. I I think it's an excellent definition of you on the Internet. Yeah. Yeah. Much more than in more, much more than traditional influencers. Yeah. Because Eugene does not pedal products but has a respectable amount of people who follow you and you know back to the earlier conversation trust people who trust you you try to put them onto things that you really believe in advice information the things you're passionate about i did i did get asked to do something recently for this uh this newsletter called why it's interesting Mm. and yeah, I found it. In, I found it fascinating for me to share the things that inspire me, because it was really just a opportunity to share with people my curations, and it was also good because to use that Kanye example, you're hopefully putting other people on that you believe in, and you know, I actually put on two people from the making community. I put on Vicky with Current, and I put on um, Colleen. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like nice because I, I know how hard it is sometimes to build certain things, especially because growth, because as a creator, you just want more people to see your work. Sometimes it requires something else for you to break free and to jump into different worlds. And I say worlds more like different audiences. Yeah, I agree. And yeah. just for people's reference, Colleen writes an excellent newsletter called The Line Between. Yeah. Which I very much enjoy reading. Yeah. And for me, like, it's it's weird because theoretically we are both sides, right? We create and we also curate. We create yeah. like con like interviews. We do interviews. We create product. But I'm trying to think if as a curator, it's easier. Sorry. As a what now? I, I cannot hear. curator. It. Okay. Curator CU. Yeah. Not creator. Those yeah. words sound so similar. Yeah. Sorry. Like, I'm trying to identify, like. I personally feel a little bit, not lost, but a lack of energy to create the things I want to create at the level I want to create. But because curation is something that I feel is a constant evolving organism, if you've built up a system and framework around it, it's more about maintaining curation. Do you understand, like, kind of what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Well, something that. I tell myself a lot and also tell a lot of younger 
designers, illustrators, people who want to do creative things, who want to create, right, not curate, is that your taste will almost always exceed your own ability to execute. Oh, Part interesting. The reason that you become a creator and you become interested in making things and putting things out into the world is because you can easily identify what you think of as good and creative work that you value. So actually, you could say that a good creator starts out by being naturally a good curator. Yeah. Or, or having that curatorial eye. But actually, your passion is to make things, not just to select things. And this can be very discouraging for young people or anyone. I shouldn't just say young. It can be discouraging for me because you make things and they are not of the quality that you understand, that you're able to see yeah. out in the world. And I think that, the that there's a depressing side of this, which could say like, oh, you give up on it and then you go into curation. That definitely is what I feel right now. Mm. Like I see things, the words I write, you know, everything just doesn't feel up to spec. But I also feel like I don't have the time, expertise, like a lot of things, like just I don't feel capable of doing it, mm. which is discouraging. So in light of that, sometimes you enter these moments in your career or your, your trajectory and you're like, do I learn to turn a weakness into a strength or do I just double down on what I'm good at? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, obviously there is a, you know, got to keep a roof over your head aspect to this where you also have to pay your bills. But if we're talking about being personally satisfied, if you know that I would be the most satisfied by being able to make things that I think are of, as you say, up to spec, then I think you persevere yeah. through all of the bad writing and bad drawings and bad animations and videos, whatever it is. And eventually, hopefully, one day you get to a point where something looks closer to what you know to be good. Yeah. Like for me, the the aspect of pure creating in the traditional sense of photography, video, writing, like I don't feel that strong about, like personally, my own skill set, but I do feel strong about creating environments, which are a little bit more cerebral. It's like it could be anything and everything, right? Two kind of different things. One is like, what are you able to execute, right? In level of like, what are your skills in doing a certain type of thing? And then on the other hand, it's like, what do I get really excited about seeing myself make and do? And if you're a lucky person, then those two things match. Yeah. And often people are not that lucky yeah. that the two things match up in that way. We went super side tangent. I'm going to bring us back for a minute to this Vogue Business article where they talked about a shift just this past year in the tone of online content. And the author describes it as being having gone from inspirational to informational. So where oh, you yeah, might have yeah. turned to whatever platform it is to get inspired and now you turn to it for information, which is along the lines of the rise of curation yeah, again, yeah. of having 
stepped away from what things used to be the the the, the level, I guess, to what was it you said earlier, like day to day life pictures to like actual the things you're interested in, your favorite things. I think it's like that shift yeah. as well. Well, I think also COVID has really pushed us to forget about inspiration to a degree because everyone's experiences have been so different that can you really push the inspiration narrative when someone has just had a very different experience? Like, how do you kind of, like, I think when things are sort of uh, a little bit different and less, call it maybe less severe, right? Like, I think that people can lean a bit more on the inspiration card. Yeah. And you could definitely say there was a dramatic rise in the search for accurate information. I mean, even currently, yeah. I would say that there are places you can live in in the world where you really are looking for what is happening right now. Yeah. And Vogue Business gave a couple of examples of this. For example, Procter & Gamble worked with Charlie D'Amelio, the TikTok star, to choreograph a dance for promoting safety practices like self-quarantine and social distancing. The UK government found Love Island stars to promote the NHS test and trace programs. Yeah. And also the White House invited Olivia Rodrigo, the music artist, to encourage people to get vaccinated. So yeah. these are just examples of, again, to use that phrase, genuine influencers flexing their influence in realms that are less traditional, mm -hmm. more on that informational, educational level. One thing that this article talks about, which I think we've said repeatedly, but there's like some we'll stats. We'll say it again. We're going to say it again. We'll say it again. Numbers in the article show young people are looking to trust brands that have the same values as them. So, for example, I mean, this is my the example I keep using, like climate change. A consumer wants to know that the brand that they're supporting, that they're buying from, has the same perspective, same stance on climate change that they do. And we've said this as well. That doesn't necessarily mean that anything concrete gets done on that value, but it's important that brands express that stance. And they're doing this by working with influencers. Mm -hmm. So WGSN called it a key trend of this year. And I think the question is whether this trend will continue or, as you said, is it possible that it's kind of like a rise and fall type of trend where people will once again go back to the traditional influencer? They're, they're not going to look anymore for that like depth of critical thought. What they want is like just the easy inspirational stuff. I can see us continue to enter this space mm. and I think it'll continue to grow because one big difference, as you mentioned, is values themselves as a byproduct of something consumers want or just like that influencer audience dynamic, right? If that's something they want. I believe that they'll continue to seek out people that provide that. And if you as a influencer are seeing better traction and interaction with you sharing not what you had for dinner last night, but a thought around something of interest, you'll need to continue to do that or you'll want to continue to do that to fill, to feed the algorithmic beast. Mm. I mean, I just as a remark, it's a lot more work for everyone. 
it's more work for the genuine influencer to produce that type of content to express those opinions and thoughts and more work for brands to identify who these people are. They're not so interchangeable anymore. Like I can't hire exactly one person to, as an influencer that's just like this other person because mm -hmm. everyone has these very like niche lanes yeah, and specified audiences. And it's also kind of like more work for us. I mean, but I guess this is where things are going. This is what people want. It is like an indication of this. It's like people are reading more and thinking about the people that they follow in a more thorough way than previously. Yeah. And I would say that's a good thing. Yeah. Good place to cap things off. Sure. If you are interested in hearing more about Megan, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Patreon members get access to the Discord where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>